Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. Thank you very much for coming this evening. It's not all that cold outside, but this is probably cold for Sydney. I'd like to begin by welcoming you to country. So I would like to acknowledge and pay respect to the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. It's upon their ancestral lands that the University of Sydney is built as we share our own knowledge here, teaching and learning and research practices within the university, may we also pay respect to the knowledge embedded forever within the Aboriginal custodianship of country. So we've come here tonight to talk about CRISPR, or gene, genome editing. We are going to run, as part of the University of Sydney Genome Editing Initiative, we're going to run two sessions. Tonight we're talking about the technology of CRISPR primarily. And so we will talk, the speakers here tonight will talk for maybe 45, 50 minutes and then we'll open the floor to questions from you. So if you've got questions, please ask at the end of, this, end of all the speakers here tonight. And I'm going to begin by um, giving you a bit of a rundown on just what CRISPR is, how it operates, and then each of the speakers here will tell you a bit about their work and how they're applying the technology in their day-to-day -day work at the university. So most of you, I'm sure probably all of you, are familiar with how we work, how biology works on the planet, that DNA is the basis of life, this beautiful molecule here, made up of four monomers, C, A, G and T. And that, that code, that genetic code that's embedded in all of our cells, codes basically primarily for proteins, and it's the proteins that do the work in our cells, and it's the cells that make up our organisms. And so DNA is the stuff that we are here to talk about tonight. So DNA, the basic structure of DNA, was first identified by, of course, Watson and Crick back in 1953. And then by 2001, we managed to be able to sequence the entire human genome. And we've sequenced the genomes of thousands of other organisms since. So we've done a very, very good job of being able to go from, in 50 years, going from understanding the basic structure of the molecule to understanding the very basis of that molecule in us and, all the, and many, much of the biology around us. So in each of our cells, we have about 3 billion nucleotides, and that codes for roughly about 25,000 genes. So we understand the structure. We've got the whole genome sequenced, so all those nucleotides, we understand the sequence of those nucleotides in thousands of organisms, ourselves included. And then since we've done that, we've been able to identify important elements in the genome. So we know, for example, what small stretches of DNA do in terms of regulating the proteins or regulating our cell function and regulating physiology. We also know now 
that even small differences in this code can lead to important changes in protein function or the loss of proteins and then in turn in terms of cell function. So for example this here, this gene here on the left hand side codes for this protein and we know that even very very small changes in that genetic code can lead to changes in the function of the protein or even in some cases the loss of the protein entirely. So you only need small changes in that code sometimes to make large differences in the way that a cell or an organism can behave. So CRISPR that we're here to talk about tonight, CRISPR allows us to make targeted changes to the DNA code. So we understood the structure, then we understood what the molecule looks like in our cells and now with CRISPR we have the capacity to make changes to the code relatively easily. So Cas CRISPR is basically made up of two components, the Cas9 protein which is an endonuclease meaning that it can cut DNA and the guide RNA, the important bit that guides that endonuclease protein to the DNA so we can, can cut the DNA at precise locations. So it comes, it was it evolved in a bacteria as an adaptive immune system to protect the bacteria against viral infection. So I made this probably pretty naff um, animation here to try and show you what it is, how it works in bacteria. So the virus comes along, infects the bacteria. You can see the bacteria sitting here on the outside of this, uh, the virus sitting out here on the outside of this bacterial cell here. The, the virus comes along, injects a bit of its DNA into the bacteria and then that DNA normally codes for the bacterial genes for replica, uh, the viral genes for replication. But what the CRISPR mechanism in the bacteria does is it takes, as an adaptive immune system, it takes a bit of that DNA and it stores it in its own bacterial DNA for later recognising the same virus. So if the virus comes again, along again later, injects its DNA again, then the guide RNA that's coded for by this bit of stored DNA here combines with the Cas9 protein, is targeted to that viral DNA, chops up the viral DNA, degrades the virus and the virus and the bacteria is protect, protected against the virus. So it's clustered, CRISPR stands for clustered regularly interspaced short palindromic repeats which is these elements here and in between each of those black elements there are those short bits of viral DNA, those bits of adaptive immunity so that the bacteria can recognise those sequences or recognise those invading viruses if they come back again. So the CRISPR system has evolved to recognise DNA sequences and to cut them. Pretty straightforward, pretty simple mechanism. So why is that so powerful? It's so powerful because it's able to be easily programmed now by us to guide this Cas9 protein to a precise DNA sequence. And that's something we haven't been able to do before. So now we can very easily, very cheaply in fact, 
alter this guide RNA so that we take this Cas9 protein to a precise location in a genome in a cell. And that's no mean feat because, as I said, there are three billion nucleotides inside every human cell. In a bread wheat cell, there are 17 billion nucleotides. So the capacity to be able to target an individual amongst those 3 billion or 17 billion is certainly a discovery uh, worthy of note. So what happens, what is the basic CRISPR mechanism? What happens inside when the Cas9 protein is guided to a specific sequence? So this is meant to show, that little inset here is meant to show what's happening inside the Cas9 protein bound to that DNA molecule there. So the guide RNA guides the, the Cas9 to the target sequence. So you can see here the guide RNA here, base pairing or targeting to this genomic DNA sequence here. So we, when we want to target a particular sequence, design our guide RNA, just this sequence here, to match the DNA sequence that we want to target the Cas9 protein to. So all we have to do, basically, is design a guide RNA with a particular sequence that matches our corresponding genomic DNA sequence. And then, when it gets there, the active sites in the Cas9 protein cut the DNA. It's as simple and straightforward as that, a mechanism but obviously works very well in the bacteria in which it evolved, and it works very well in practice in the other organisms that we're using the mechanism now. So, in this image here, we're looking at the Cas9. It's cut the DNA and floats off, but the cell doesn't like, of course. Our cells don't like it when the DNA breaks. The DNA breaks in cells sometimes, and so our cells have evolved, plant cells, cells in general have evolved, very efficient mechanisms to repair those DNA breaks. So as soon as the DNA is broken, proteins are directed towards the break to repair it. But the repair process is error prone. So in this case, you can see here, as those proteins have repaired this break, they've inserted a couple of nucleotides represented as those black nucleotides there. So we've inserted three in that error-prone repair process. So we've got that error here that's now been incorporated because the DNA was cut and repaired there. So those introduced errors, in this case, those introduced errors have changed the code and led to that downstream gene that's coding for a protein to be switched off, to be no longer functional. So a couple of errors introduced at that point switched off the downstream gene. So in this case, we've switched off the gene because the cell has um, repaired, inaccurately repaired a break that we've made with our CRISPR. So the advantages of CRISPR so far for us are that it's able to eat, easily target precise locations on the DNA and also that it can introduce errors that will switch off protein function. So you'll hear from a couple of speakers tonight to talking about switching off individual protein function. So now that we can do that with precision and with relative ease, something that we weren't able to do before. But there's another repair mechanism in the cell called HDR, or homology-dependent repair. 
So when a break is made, a cell will either repair through this NHEJ mechanism, giving us these sometimes inaccurate repairs, or it re will repair the DNA break using this pathway. And in the case of the HDR repair pathway, we can stitch in new sequences into that break. So the DNA is broken and we can stitch in um, new DNA material into the break. So now we add another advantage of CRISPR is that we can introduce through the HDR repair pathway, introduce new DNA into the genome. And then finally, I'm just about finished, finally, I've probably gone over time, finally, um, so those are the basic mechanisms of CRISPR, already pretty amazing in terms of the research that we're able to do. But then on top of that, of course, since its discovery, since the discovery of the mechanism and its manipulation for use in scientific research, you can't stop scientists being scientists, and scientists have come up with a whole bunch of other modifications. So one of the modifications to the basic mechanisms is that Cas9 has been modified, it's been disabled so that it no longer cuts DNA. So you might think, what's the use of targeting something to the DNA that can no longer cut the DNA? But you can fuse that protein to some other protein. So in this case, it's a, a deaminase. And so you can add functionality. You can take your DNA, you can take a functional element to a precise location on the DNA, and you can add functionality that will change what you can do at that location. And some of our speakers might talk about how they're using that sort of mechanism. So scientists doing what they do add functionality. So those three are added by another one. So you can guide other functional elements to precise locations on the DNA. So we, what are we doing in our lab? We're using it with plants. I'm not going to talk much about that. Other speakers, I'll leave it to other speakers to talk about what we're doing. These graphs here are just the, the basic rationale, I think, for the work that we're doing. The FAO, the UN, uh, suggests that we need to increase, increase the productivity of these crops at that rate with the dotted line there. At, mo at the moment, the increase in the productivity of our crops is tracing along with that solid line there. So as you can see, by 2050, for example, in rice, our productivity to feed the global population should be somewhere up around here, and on current trends, it'll be somewhere down around here. We're also not using any more land, haven't been for the last 30 or 40 years, haven't been using any more land. There's a good reason for that. Um, but we need our food production to keep increasing. Of course, this is not the only way. Fully appreciate that this is not the only way of increasing the productivity of food, but it's undeniable that the population increases are in train and we need to deal with that. So I think that this is, in our lab, we're working on the premise that this is one of the ways that we might be able to um, increase the productivity of the land base that we have by using CRISPR. CRISPR is great, we know, in our lab. It works very, very well. It does what I've just said it does, but it's getting it into the cell. The technology to getting it into plant cells comes from the 1970s and 80s, and it's highly inefficient, so we're trying to use um, nanoscience to enable us to get that um, CRISPR mechanism into plant cells and to improve that whole process of plant improvement more quickly. 
So thanks for your attention. I'll hand you over to the next speaker now and hopefully you'll have questions for us all at the end. Thank you. So thank you, Brian. Um, yeah, so I'm going to talk to you uh, about how we are using CRISPR in, in my lab. And, uh, and so what we're studying, uh, I think, is one of the most amazing processes in biology. And that is how do we go from a single cell uh, to a complex organism such as a human, in this case, uh, or, on the other hand, a plant such as this giant sequoia. So how do these cells uh, organise themselves to do such an amazing feat? So this shows you a, a beautiful movie, actually, of a little uh, fruit fly larva developing. And each one of these white dots there corresponds to a cell. And you can see them moving around and dividing and doing all sorts of kind of interesting things. So a fundamental question then is, well, how do all these cells know what to do? There's no central dictator telling them all what to do. They all have to decide themselves. Uh, and so one answer to this question is that, in fact, in each of these cells, different genes are turned on. And this shows you another picture of a little fruit fly larva. And the colours are indicating to you uh, where different genes are turned on. So you can see there are about five genes turned on here in these different stripes, uh, which will mean that these cells, corresponding cells, will behave in different ways. This is showing you five genes, but in fact, you know, there are hundreds or if not thousands that are turned on in many beautiful, amazing patterns within this tissue that help to control the development of the fruit fly. In my lab, we're working, uh, like Brian, with plants. And so what we're studying are these amazing patterns that we see out in nature um, that I'm sure many of you are familiar with. Uh, so we're particularly interested in these symmetries, in the periodic way plant organs such as leaves or flowers are formed, and the shapes of leaves. So how do we do this? Well, if you look deep inside a structure in the centre or the tip of a growing plant in the shoot right down there, what it looks like is this. So this is a movie showing you the tip of the shoot of the plant. These are cells growing and dividing much in the same way that you saw with the fruit fly. This is the shoot tip. These things around here are little flower buds developing. And so we're asking these same questions. How do these cells know what to do? Uh, and, one, and, and as I mentioned, different genes are turned on in these different cells. And that's shown here. Here I'm showing two different genes mainly, one in uh, that you can see it's turned on in the red cells and one uh, corresponding to the green colour. And so we've identified this gene uh, marked by red previously from its sequence and we looked to see where it's turned on and as you can see it's turned on in the centre of the shoot. Remember these are the flower buds developing around uh, the outside and so it's turned on right in the centre. And so then uh, our next question was well what is the gene doing there? And so for this we needed to turn to CRISPR and so uh, we've been using CRISPR to knock this gene out and we recently got some interesting results and so that's shown here. So this is our normal model plant that we usually work with and that's its normal development. You can see it's formed several leaves there and this is the seedling corresponding to the plants where we've used CRISPR to knock that particular gene out. And so you can see there's a big difference between the two seedlings. This one has produced several leaves, while this one has only first, uh, produced the first two leaves. And so now we can infer from this that, that that gene that we've knocked out 
is uh, required for the development of the extra leaves there and also in fact for the continued growth of the plant. And so this is just illustrating one way in which we can use CRISPR to understand how genes function in development. Another amazing aspect of development is uh, self-organization of pattern. I showed you that there, you can have many different patterns of gene expression. Uh, how are these patterns formed? Well, one way this is occurring is through self-organization of cells talking to each other, simply that, to create patterns. And a beautiful example of this is shown here, where human stem cells have been plated onto a plate, an agar plate, the micropattern on the plate, and they are self-organizing themselves into an embryonic structure uh, called the primitive streak. Uh, and so this is uh, another amazing process that we want to understand. And using CRISPR now, we can leverage this process with CRISPR to understand this. And uh, this is one particular example, but this process of self-organizing stem cells has been used to generate all kinds of organs. So now you can really follow very closely uh, watching development occur on a plate, and now if you leverage the CRISPR technology, you can start to do all kinds of things. So one example is shown here, where we can induce mutations in, in those stem cells and try to uh, in, induce organ formation, as I showed you, and see what goes wrong. Or perhaps we can um, model a disease, turn off a gene, and see how those cells behave uh, in relation to some disease that we're interested in. We can also use CRISPR to target many genes at once, and this is useful for studying cancer, for instance, which requires modification of several genes. And so we can watch what happens uh, to stem cells or cells in a dish when we've induced cancer. Uh, we can, in fact, do this on, uh, on mass and use CRISPR to target perhaps every gene in the genome and therefore screen all these genes to see what they do, what they're required for, uh, in a cell culture, and Greg will be talking about that later uh, in the evening. We can also modify using CRISPR genes in other ways, uh, and Alison after, after me will be talking about that. So uh, just to summarize then, uh, complex organisms uh, use different genes turned on in different cells to control their development, and by using CRISPR we can uh, knock these genes out or modify them to help us understand the role of these genes during development. Um, we had this ability to some degree previously, but this is a much more efficient uh, method that we can use. And importantly, it's also more widely applicable. Uh, previously, we were somewhat limited in using models, model organisms, model plants, model animals in the lab. But this approach can be used more widely, and so we can target uh, other organisms that are perhaps more useful for applied research. Um, and as I mentioned, this can be applied in different contexts, such as uh, uh, in vitro organogenesis or development in a dish, for instance. So I'll stop there. And thank you very much. And take Hi, everybody. Um, thanks very much for coming tonight. I'm going to be telling you today, tonight, about how we're using, in my lab, CRISPR and Cas9 technology um, to study transgenerational epigenetic inheritance. But first, what I need to do is tell you exactly what transgenerational epigenetic inheritance is, and then I'll tell you how we're using CRISPR to study it. So we've already heard beautifully from Marcus how fascinating development is. You have the genetic component of the, of the father, genetic component of the mother, 
half of each, mixed together during fertilization, and the, the genetic component there is enough to has, supplies all of the information that is required to make this, this complex organism, like this, this, this cute dog here. Um, but, and we've known this for the last 50 to 100 years, but it turns out that it's actually that genetic component is not all the information that's passed on from the parent to the offspring. Sometimes there's an extra piece of information called an uh, epigenetic mark or the epigenome which can be changed. Epi standing for uh, above or on top of the DNA. There are a bunch of different epigenetic signals and I'm not going to go into them today, but the important thing that you need to know is that those, the epigenetic marks are particularly susceptible to environmental um, modification. So I'm illustrating that here with this lightning bolt, uh, some kind of environmental perturbation has influenced the, the father here, and that some portion of that epi change in the epigenome has, has passed on to the sperm, that little yellow circle there, and is being passed on to the next generation. Now, this is a really... Um, novel finding, the fact that, that an epigenetic mark can be passed between generations, and it's something we've only really come to, to really recognize uh, its importance in the last decade or so. And um, so when that happens, when the epigenome is altered, you end up with a very different phenotype. Um, now, <laughs> it's not um, often as dramatic as this, this I've illustrated here. You, I've used these cute dogs for um, effect. But now I'm going to show you um, an actual epigenetic change. So these mice here that you can see here are genetically identical, but epigenetically different. And you can see that they've got very different phenotypes. This mouse here has a brown coat color, and this one here has a yellow coat color, and you've got mosaics in between remind you that they're genetically identical but epigenetically different. It's the epi, a change to their epigenome that's changing their coat colour. Not only is it changing their coat colour, but this mouse is much slimmer than this yellow mouse who is obese. So that it's the epigenetic change that's causing the obesity in the yellow mouse. Not only that, but this, epi, this change in the epigenome can be passed on to subsequent generations. So the brown mouse will have more brown offspring than the yellow mouse, who will have more yellow offspring. And the yellow mouse will also pass a, a metabolic defect onto its children and grandchildren that's um, set up by its obesity, which is caused by the change in the epigenome. So you can immediately see how this could impact human health and disease, especially in the light of the obesity epidemic that's going on at the moment. But it's very hard to study in humans. So that's where my work comes in. I use the model organism Cenobditis elegans, or C. elegans. It's a nematode worm. It's about a millimetre long. And it's got numerous features. Where is my mouse? That make it a particularly good model organism. One of those features is that it is small and grows very quickly. So its generation time is about three days, which is particularly good when you're doing transgenerational studies. It's also transparent. As you can see here, you can see all of the cells inside, inside the worm, I'll call it a worm, um, just down a light microscope. And so we can, it, that's made it a particularly powerful tool for studying developmental biology, as, as Marcus was talking about. We, 
the, the cell fate of every single cell following fertilization has been precisely mapped out in, in these organisms. It's also handy because we can introduce fluorescent reporter genes, such as a green fluorescent protein, um, and we can attach those reporter genes to any gene that we're interested in studying the location and function of, and we can see, just by looking down a microscope, which cells that gene is expressed in, or the location of the gene, um, without having to do any dissections, because they're transparent. And um, we've been using CRISPR to, to do that, and I'm going to come back to that in a second. So we use this model organism to study epigenetic inheritance. Um, this is an example of, of the data that, that we get. So we have a gene where we can measure epigenetic inheritance, and we can measure that as a percentage of epigenetic inheritance here. And I'm showing you in the parents, the children, and the grandchildren, about 80% inheritance of the epigenetic signal at this particular gene in a normal, normal worm. But we can make genetic mutants in, or in C. elegans. We've been able to do that for a while. We can do it much better and much more efficiently now with CRISPR. And this is an example of a genetic mutant and you can see that there's no epigenetic inheritance going on here. So this gene, this tells us that this gene is, is absolutely required for epigenetic inheritance to occur. So that's, that's helpful, and we've, done, we've, we've, we've got a list of genes now that we know are important for epigenetic inheritance, but what we really want to know is how they all fit together in a network and what the function of those individual genes is. And that's where CRISPR comes in particularly importantly for us here. So these genes, we presume, and we know in some cases, are going to be expressed in the germline. So the germline of an organism is the, the cells that are going to develop into the eggs and the sperm and make the next generation. And that germline in C. elegans is, in particular is very difficult to, to target um, with genetic modifications and historically has been very, very difficult to do. But now, using CRISPR technology, we can tag genes that are expressed in the germline and see where they are expressed. And so <clears throat> that's what I'm showing you here. This is the result of an uh, experiment where we've used CRISPR-Cas9 technology to insert red fluorescent protein just next to the gene that we're interested in. And that results in a protein that has the function of the gene and also is um, red fluorescent. And so what I'm showing you here outlined in this sort of cartoon white is the germline of the C. elegans um, in just normal white light and now under the, the fluorescent light. And you can see these red circles here. That's the red fluorescent protein that's attached to this gene that we're interested in that's totally important for epigenetic inheritance. And these circles are the nuclei. So the nucleus of a cell is where the DNA is. So what this is telling us is that this gene that we know is, is vitally important for epigenetic inheritance is expressed in the germline, which is, which is where we would think it would be, and it's in the nucleus next to the DNA, where it can modify the DNA, where it can modify the epigenome, rather, that's attached to the DNA. And, and these red circles are not in the wild type that hasn't been tagged. So um, bringing this all together, we, we do epigenetic inheritance assays using the model organism C. elegans. We can find genetic mutants, and a combination of these genetic mutants and CRISPR-Cas9 technology to investigate their function will lead us to a better understanding of how epigenetic inheritance works. And when we've done that, 
ultimately that's going to lead to a better understanding of complex disease in humans, but not only that, in, in other organisms as well. But we can also, looking forward, we can use CRISPR technology also to potentially alter the epigenome. So, so Brian mentioned how we can um, alter the functionality of the Cas9 protein. We can make it no longer able to cut the DNA, but still guide other proteins to the DNA. So we can guide whatever protein we're interested in, perhaps a gene that, that alters the um, a protein that alters the epigenome to regions of the DNA that we know are susceptible to epigenetic modification. That's something that could be done in the future. Um, in some labs are doing that, that now, in fact. So I'm going to finish, um, finish there now, and um, thank you very much for listening, and I'm going to pass over to Chris. Thanks very much, Alison. Thanks, everyone, for coming tonight. Uh, so you've just heard about a couple of the applications that Alison and Marcus have already mentioned uh, in plants and other organisms. And I'm just going to go through um, the current status of this technology in animals and briefly touch on some of the work uh, being done in my lab. So the production of transgenic or genetically engineered animals is certainly not a new thing. So, in 1982, the production of the first transgenic mice containing an additional growth hormone gene made the headlines and was regarded as one of the most significant scientific breakthroughs for that year. So, 36 years ago. Since that time, many thousands of transgenic mice have been produced uh, for research purposes and understanding gene function. And, of course, over the, the past decades, there have been many transgenic studies uh, in other species as well, uh, particularly sheep, cattle, and pigs. Um, and, of course, the ability to insert or knock out a gene has increased our knowledge of gene function, regulation of gene expression, and the consequences of, of genetic mutations immeasurably. Uh, I have up there um, that uh, the birth of Dolly the sheep was a milestone for transgenic uh, animal production. Dolly herself wasn't genetically modified, but the procedure that was used to produce Dolly uh, was certainly a milestone because since then, um, researchers who are trying to tra uh, produce transgenic animals have uh, used that method. And in this decade, another revolution has been the use of site-specific nucleases to produce these very specific very precise gene mutations or gene changes. So in the early days, the modifications to the DNA were very imprecise, uh, very inefficient, and of course the challenges also included that the techniques involved, uh, associated techniques such as embryo culture, hadn't really been developed well. And of course CRISPR-Cas since 2014 has come onto the scene and really been a game changer. Why is CRISPR-Cas9 so revolutionary? As we've heard uh, Brian explain, that it's so easy to use and the simplicity of design of using RNA as a guide means that you can produce the guide in a few days. The other site-specific nucleases uh, that involve proteins can take many months to produce the guide. Uh, of course, the high efficiency, the fact that it's cheap, uh, and it makes the whole process much faster, um, means that it can be used in most 
embryo labs. Um, multiple sites can be targeted at the same time and because of the high efficiency, you can knock out a gene uh, by disrupting both alleles at the same time. And the fact that you can make modifications without leaving any um, trace behind of uh, any foreign DNA is a huge advantage. Of course, there are still significant challenges associated with the technology, so we still have to do a lot of testing to make sure that the edits are correct uh, and so that there are no off-target effects or unwanted DNA changes. And mosaicism is an issue in embryos in that if the edit occurs after that initial DNA replication in the embryo, you can get different uh, uh, well, cells that are either edited or not. And of course, we also have to do testing on the embryo to make sure that the conditions we use to deliver the um, CRISPR-Cas9 components don't affect or have any adverse effect on embryo development. So there's still a lot of testing that needs to be done to make sure that the editing is correct and uh, there are no adverse effects on the embryo. This diagram here sort of uh, describes the different procedures that can be used to produce a genetically edited animal. So in this highlighted method I have here, this is exactly the procedure that was used, or essentially the procedure that was used to produce Dolly the sheep. And what it involves is you take a biopsy, a tissue biopsy from a donor animal, you grow the cells up in a dish in an incubator, and as I said, Dolly herself wasn't genetic, genetically modified, so the cells were used directly from the dish for cloning. Uh, but with gene editing, we can do the gene edits on the, the cells in this dish, and then we can check that the gene edits are correct in these cells. We can take one of those cells, transfer it to a oocyte uh, or an unfertilized egg that has had its maternal chromosomes removed by micromanipulation. So essentially, it's an empty egg. You then fuse the donor cell with the empty egg, and you have a reconstructed embryo. You activate the embryo to commence development, uh, culture it in vitro for a short period of time, and you transfer the early stage embryo back into a surrogate mother who then carries that developing embryo through to term and you have the genetically engineered animals. That method, that previous method, is done for large gene edits. Now for small gene edits, this is the real game changer with CRISPR-Cas. It is so, uh, well, relative to the cloning procedure, so easy. You can take an oocyte, fertilize it normally, so you have a normally produced embryo. You can then micro-inject the CRISPR-Cas9 components directly into the one-cell embryo, either into the pronucleus or into the cytoplasm, and the Cas9 does its job directly in the one-cell embryo. So it's all done in one step. You don't have to use the inefficient cloning procedure. Then you simply transfer the embryo back into, the, uh, into a recipient female, who again carries the developing embryo to term. So this is a real game changer. the simplicity that you can do a gene edit in an embryo, in a normal embryo, in one step.
Just to um, emphasize the versatility of CRISPR, so as I've just explained, you can inject the components within a one-cell embryo, uh, also called a zygote, uh, to disrupt a single gene, uh, of course, to study the function of a single gene. And with Cas9, you can actually inject multiple guide RNAs at the same time to disrupt multiple genes in one step. So you might want to do that if you're studying a complex trait or if you're studying a genetic disease that involves multiple genes. And with um, homology-directed repair, you can correct small errors in the DNA or introduce a small change. And to do that, you also inject with the CRISPR components uh, a small stretch of DNA that has the sequence that you want. And you can do that if you're looking at trying to, to uh, study a, a specific gene mutation. So in this way, over the last few years, dozens of animals, dozens of, of pigs in particular, have been produced by various research groups around the world as models to study human disease. So that's the real driving force behind all of the efforts using CRISPR-Cas to make genetically engineered large animals. Mice are still used very widely to understand gene function, but mice aren't very good if you want to study the onset and progression of disease. So to do that, um, pigs are seen as an ideal model because uh, the physiology of the pig is very similar to, to that in humans. Organ size is very similar to the, the organs in humans. And of course, the uh, lifespan of pigs is much longer than, than mice. So in many diseases, it does take time for the disease to actually uh, progress. So this is just a partial list of some of the pigs that have been produced in labs around the world to study conditions such as diabetes, heart disease, neurodegenerative diseases, cancers. So these are all major public health problems that we face. Now at Sydney Uni, uh, we've started a project to develop a sheep model of batten disease. Now for those of you who don't know what batten disease is, it's a, a rare neurodegenerative disorder in children and it's a horrible disease because the, the affected children, they suffer progressive loss of vision, uh, motor skills and cognitive function uh, and then they die in their late teens or 20s. Uh, there is no uh, therapy, effective therapy at the moment. There are a number of different variants that have been identified and they all involve mutations in genes that are involved uh, that are, that are lysosomal enzymes. So basically these enzymes uh, remove waste from cells. Now the sheep model that we're trying to develop, we've chosen to, to um, use sheep because the, in sheep the progression and uh, pathogen pathogenesis and progression of the disease is very similar to that in humans. And we're focusing on a particular variant of Batten disease, CLN7 variant. There is no naturally occurring mutation uh, in animals for us to study. So our strategy is to use the CRISPR-Cas9 system to disrupt the gene that is responsible for the CLN7 variant and um, in that way uh, produce a sheep model that reflects that condition. 
currently, we're at the stage where we're developing the, or we're looking at the conditions to deliver the, the components, and we're also seeing the efficiency. Uh, and of course, we need to confirm the the uh, uh, that there are no um, uh, other edits. So there's still a lot of work for us to do. So the, the project is supported by the Batten Disease Support and Research Association. So that was formed by parents of children with the disease. And hopefully one day we can develop a therapy uh, that can stop the onset and progression of this terrible disease. Thank you. Okay, I'm Greg Neely. I'm going to tell you about some of the CRISPR genome editing stuff we do in my lab and uh, uh, basically applying CRISPR genome editing to drug discovery. And it's probably something you wouldn't at first think that you could do with CRISPR, but it ends up being a really good uh, use. So humans have 23 chromosomes and then two copies of each except for the sex chromosomes. And then there's 25,000 proteins, basically. I mean, it depends on how you define the genes and the proteins, but you get splice variants. You can, you know, but basically there's around 25,000 um, proteins with common domains, at least. So... CRISPR allows us entry and access into, into uh, looking at how these proteins work, and we can do that in, in, uh, in kind of big experiments, big pooled experiments. So you have chromosomes, um, and then they code for DNA. The DNA codes for the uh, proteins, and basically all the drugs you know about that are used clinically, pretty much 99% of drugs target these proteins, right? And so basically just from all the the work in biology up until now, we've, we have accidentally or on purpose made drugs that are helpful for some diseases. Um, and they basically uh, target proteins. And so what CRISPR genome editing allows us to do is, is, so basically most drugs turn off proteins. Most drugs are antagonists, so they block protein function. There's a few that activate. Um, but so what CRISPR genome editing does that's kind of the powerful, that's powerful and allows us to use it kind of to, to look at disease is that now, Instead of, instead of having these drugs, we can just knock out every gene in the genome, and basically that knockout is similar to if we had a drug, because most drugs block. So then now, because of this technology, we can we get access to the entire genome, and we can, we can see, okay, if we wanted to study a, a, a specific disease or a process, um, and we wanted to block it, how would we do that? Well, let's test every gene in the genome, and we can find some that can block it. So that's kind of the power of... Uh, of genome editing that I've been taking advantage of in, in my lab. So, so normally what you've seen uh, in some of the other talks, uh, we'll, we'll take a normal human cell or animal cell or worm, and we'll do genome editing, and we'll edit just that cell. And then it's, uh, everything that comes out of that is clonal. It's all the same, uh, just one, one edit. So then what we do is basically we, we grow up big pools of these cells, and then basically knock out every gene in the genome or edit every gene in the genome. We can turn them on or turn them off or turn them down. Um, but most of the work we've done so far is turning them off because uh, it's kind of the most robust and easiest experiments we can start with. So then now we get a mosaic where basically we have a big vat of cells where every, so usually we have 50 million cells. And so there's 25,000 genes, 50 million cells. So we have every gene in the genome knocked out like 6,000 times with three different guides. Um, so basically, or six different guides. Uh, so basically, we have this mosaic mixture of human uh, cells, and then we can study them, and, and, and I'll show you how we do that. So the basic logic is the easiest thing to do with CRISPR, whole genome CRISPR screening, is take something that's toxic, so poison toxic, obviously, or a toxin. So I'm going to show you about jellyfish. 
um, or uh, disease genes, so like uh, Alzheimer's disease genes or Parkinson's disease genes. There's tons, cancer, lots of stuff we can do. Um, and so normally, basically, you have human cells. You add the poison, for example, to make it easy, and they're all dead. So basically, all the cells are dead. But this poison is acting through human genes somehow. Um, there's the, basically the way they work, and let, basically, basically the way almost everything kind of bioactive works is by targeting specific pathways in the cell somehow. Um, and so, so here we know nothing. We just know it's deadly. But that's a good start for the kinds of work we do. Um, but then now what we do is do whole genome CRISPR. We knock out every gene in the genome. We have a big vat of different cells. Each one's missing a single gene that's different. And then we add the poison or the toxin or the disease. And, and basically what we're looking for is something that doesn't die. So we're looking for, in this case, the red gene. So all these other things are dead, but the red gene uh, knockouts don't die because the poison or the disease or the toxin requires that gene, right? Um, so basically... Now we can consider. Now we can consider these. Uh, sorry, this is dying. Um, now we consider the uh, uh, the the red genes uh, as drug targets to, to block this poison because the poison requires this human gene to work. So we've applied that to the box jellyfish in my lab. Uh, so this is the most deadly, most venomous animal in the world. So I kind of got. Like when I first moved down to Australia, I kind of thought it'd be fun to study the deadly stuff um, because it seems so cool and exciting. Um, uh, but it actually kind of worked out pretty good. So this one animal, it's three meters long, super deadly. There's enough venom in this animal. If it, like, played, if it played its cards right, it could kill 600 people with the venom it has. Um, but it's not, obviously not a total ninja as well. So you probably, it, would, it wouldn't get away with more than a couple, I guess. Um, <laughs> So we, we thought, okay, well, this is cool technology. Let's study the most deadly thing in the world, right? <laughs> um, and uh, when, so when jellyfish stings you, um, uh, the box jellyfish stings you, you get the scarring and get lots of pain, pain that lasts 48 hours. Uh, my collaborator collects them and, and, uh, and, and like to get the venom out, and he prefers to not use gloves because it's easier. Um, and so he got stung. And, uh, and uh, it basically excruciating pain for 48 hours. Um, and then you get inflammation and scarring, which is this, and then heart problems, and uh, basically they'll go away unless you have a huge amount of venom, and then you have death within minutes. And basically the only real way to, there's an anti-venom, but it, only, it starts working two days later, and so you die within five minutes, and the anti-venom works 48 hours later. Um, and so it's, 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 well, it's better than nothing, I guess. But, um, but uh, that basically the only, the only real accepted way to, treat uh, box jellyfish uh, envenomation is uh, continuous CPR. So you just keep, keep the heart moving so that the person doesn't die. Um, so we thought, OK, can we use CRISPR genome, whole genome screening to figure out how the venom works and how we should treat stings? Um, and so the same logic that I showed you with poison, but instead of poison, it's deadly venom. Uh, so we knock out every gene in the human genome. Then we mix it with the deadly, deadly venom. And basically, we, we set it up with the cells so we know that the venom will just kill all the cells. and then we look for these so-called red genes or whatever, uh, stuff that basically when we knock out that gene or mimic a drug that targets that gene, um, the venom no longer works. So that's the logic. Um, so this is an example. This is, uh, this is one, of the, one of the data sets for the whole genome screening. This was done by Raymond Lau, a postdoc in my lab. Um, and basically, so the way you look at it is this is the whole, this is the whole human genome. So there's 25,000 genes. Uh, and then this is down here is if they're dead. 
and up here is if they're alive. So when we knock out a gene, does the cell live or die? And we do this all in big experiments, and so that saves us a lot of time. So usually this type of thing would take seven years, and then now it takes two weeks. Um, uh, and so basically then, so then we take all these cells, add the jellyfish venom, look for death, and basically everything's down here, pretty much. And so that means that that, that gene isn't required for the jellyfish to work, so there's no point in targeting it. And then up here we have like super enriched, uh, like seven genes or whatever. Um, and these ones are basically super essential for the jellyfish venom to work. So when we knock these out, the cells are resistant to jellyfish venom. So that was cool. Like, it we didn't know it would be possible, right? Like, it, didn't, it wasn't guaranteed that we'd be able to find something that made, like, a single knockout that made um, the animals or the cells resistant. So then, to make a long story short, then we go into um, a mouse model. So for some of those genes that we hit, there's drugs that we know that target those genes. And, and for one of those drugs, it's safe in humans for a different disease. So we, we tested this in mice, basically. So we take mice and we inject the venom, a little, just a little bit of venom into the paw. And uh, it causes kind of just the, like marks like this, scarring. And then... Uh, and then we add the venom plus drug, and basically the drug. This is the clinical score for the scarring, um, but basically the drug almost completely blocks uh, the scarring. And so we have this new compound that we're now trying to um, develop further and see if we can get it uh, into humans so that it's basically either topical um, drug for jellyfish stings, and we're also testing different kinds of jellyfish to see how, how common it is, uh, and then also... Um, we have some evidence that it could help, you know, block other aspects of the venom. So, um, anyway, that's one application. But, but basically, that was a really easy application because we took something super deadly, and then and then I had access to the venom. Um, but with the same technology, we can do lots and lots of cool things um, with whole genome screening. So basically, all we need to do is create a situation like a, a, a cell model of Alzheimer's disease or cancer or pain. Uh, autoimmune diseases, um, where, and then we basically um, knock out every gene in the genome and see what, what can block those diseases. So we can make one for aging, muscular dystrophy we're working on, uh, but diabetes would be a good one. Viruses are really straightforward to study this way, so all the emerging uh, viral pathogens can easily be targeted this way to figure out how to block them, and just many, many other, too many things for uh, us to study alone. Um, but basically we just knock out every gene in the genome and find something that's um, that blocks one of these models. And then we can also do the opposite, turn them on, and that kind of thing. Uh, but so that's all. Thanks. So, any questions? Uh, Aaron Heaven from Science Party. I was, it sounds like you've opened up every door possible with this. I was just wondering what is the limit now? Is it manpower or time or funding or ethics boards, as you were saying? Yeah, all those things, I think. <laughs> e, all of the above. <laughs> Fundamental research funding. <laughs> yes. yeah. it, I think it really is, um, for us, fortunately, that the University of Sydney's and decided to, to fund some of this work um, to get CRISPR moving at Sydney Uni here. And this is part of it. Hopefully there are other researchers here that are interested in um, developing the technology for their groups and their work. Um, so at least that part of it, we have a pretty good handle on the technology and the, and the university has decided to fund um, the development here. And so as part of this initiative, we will have a lab that will help 
people get a handle on the technology for their lab and help them to, to set up the experiments. But in the end, yeah, it, it all comes down to funding availability. It, although CRISPR is cheaper, as somebody mentioned, than the previous techniques, um, it's the... Hmm? Yes, but it's moving. It is cheaper. Okay, thank you all for a wonderful presentation. I'm not a scientist, so my question is about the futuristic use of genome editing technology. In the past, human adaptation to the environment via natural selection was slow and costly to pregnant women and their offspring. For instance, a human tribe migrating from Africa to the Himalayas adapted to the environment via death in utero and ex utero before the age of reproduction of the offspring and causing death to many pregnant women. As human beings start to colonise outer space on, on planets such as Mars, can gene editing technology be used for rapid human adaptation to the Martian environment and thereby avoiding the costly natural selection method of adaptation? Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I can take that one. Go for it. Yeah, we could do whole genome screens on, <laughs> on cells in Mars. We just need to like have them die first, and then we can <laughs> find the ones that don't. Like the Martian, the red ones. <laughs> yeah, 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 so basically, I, I mean, no. The, the answer is we, we, wouldn't, we wouldn't rapidly edit or uh, rapidly evolve humans, um, but we can use this type of technology to learn what the problems and challenges of, of that type of uh, environment would be and then, and then deal with them better. I mean, I guess, like, bone density is a major issue, so... Um, so it, it, it would, this, type of this type of screening, we would be able to find drugs and drug targets that can increase bone density, not in zero-G, but it probably would work that way too. Brian, this is where plant reader comes in. So do you think we can compare some of the outcomes of this technology to mutation breeding, which happened in the early part of last century? Some of the mutations can be useful in... Uh, you know, uh, getting the genes active rather than, you know, all those inactive molecules or genes in the plants? So, uh, so sorry, Harvind, what are you asking exactly? I didn't quite... I said, can some of the mutations caused by this technology, which is published, hmm. be used as activation of the genes which are inactive in the plant species? Uh, so, are you asking, can we use CRISPR to activate inactive, currently inactive genes? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, using any of the techniques that were described here tonight. So, for example, that last example that I showed with the deaminase, I think probably the easiest answer to that is um, if you wanted to use a transgenic approach, uh, you could uh, use the HDR repair pathway and knock in or stitch in an active copy of a gene, but in a more sophisticated approach, you might look at an allele that was inactive. So it's either the allele that's inactive because it's, it's being drift in the sequence, and go in and, mo and modify that sequence so that the so it matches an active version of the gene. Or if it's the promoter that's been inactivated, then either you knock in a new promoter in front of that inactive gene. Or, once again, you could go in, potentially go in and edit elements of the promoter sequence of that gene um, to, to make it, once again, active. So it's certainly um, the more complex 
if you don't want to go down that, just cut the DNA and knock in an active version of a gene, that transgenic approach. If you don't want to go down that pathway, that's certainly the easiest pathway and it's being done regularly now. So but perhaps that will not be considered transgenic and it will probably have, can see the light of the day to increase food production, probably, you know, saving from diseases 20, 30 percent. And perhaps, you know, we can actually contribute to that, uh, to feed 9.5 billion people, whatever we call it. Yeah, look, I think so. I, I think that's um, because, you know, we have a reasonably good understanding now of alleles that are, that are better than other alleles, so we might have two seemingly very closely related plants, but an, an allele of a particular gene in one of the plants that's highly active and advantageous in another allele in a probably useful plant but has inactive alleles for a few genes. Yeah, I see the day when we will be able to go in and rewrite that sequence that's missing in that one rather than go through the process of sexual crossing and... Um, that's what I'm hoping for, but we certainly need to do more work. Can I ask, um, if you're treating a, an inherited human disease with a single point mutation, a dominant disease, in using CRISPR, do you cut the gene in two places to cut out a segment, or do you just cut in one one? Yes, you cut the, you cut the, uh, do the, the double segment. strand break and then if you want to uh, make a change, create the change exactly uh, to replicate that genetic disorder, you're talking about repair or replicate repair, in an yeah. animal? Repair, so repair, yeah, yeah then, you, then you would have the uh, stretch of DNA with the sequence so that it would direct the repair the way you wanted. So there'd be two cuts? Yes. And then the... One double-stranded one, one double cut. One double-stranded. One double-stranded yeah. cut. And the RNA, the guide RNA, is that the, the exact sequence of the mutant segment or is it complementary RNA? It would match the sequence exactly, exactly. that you're, you're It's not complementary to that segment. Well, it's complementary to one yeah. strand. Is complementary to one strand. Is that what you said? Yes. So the two strands are the two DNA strands are complementary, and so the two strands are opened up, and so you use the one RNA, the guide RNA, to uh, bind to one of those strands. Okay. So instead of the other DNA strand binding to it, you've put your guide RNA, and now that's uh, matching base pairing with it. So your RNA is complementary to one of the strands. But if you have a dominant disease, and uh, the, the easiest way would be to just target the uh, mutant allele and disrupt it so that the other allele, the, the wild-type healthy gene, would, would then be take, take over if it was dominant. Um, but the other way to repair, lots of times for recessive diseases as well, um, is you create a, a single strand, or sorry, a double strand break at the site of the mutation, but you then add in a template that kind of guides the repair. Yeah, it's an instruction on how to repair. So, so the cell uses the homology-dependent repair pathway in that case when it's got a, a sequence to, to use rather than the, er the error-prone end joining. 
So I, um, I read an article recently which suggested that a sufficiently traumatic experience can alter the DNA, I assume epigenetically, uh, and it can be passed on uh, to children that are conceived after the event. Um, first of all, do you know if this is true? And if CRISPR can target epigenetic sites, would it then be reasonable to expect that you could alter the, the temperament of an organism, such as uh, irrational fear or hyperaggression, with CRISPR? So there's definitely evidence from um, rodent models that traumatic early life um, experiences and maternal stress can influence the behaviour of subsequent generations. That's evidence from mice. We can't really, it's very difficult to study that in humans at the moment. So what you're suggesting, I suppose, might in the, in the future sometime be possible, but that's a long, long way off, I think. We just don't have the knowledge of, of even in, in, in rodent models, we don't have the knowledge of how those, those epigenetic signals are being transmitted to even think about modifying them yet. And, and, then, and then in humans, it's, it's, it would be a very long way away. But I suppose one day, maybe, but it would be talking a very long time. Um, Alison, I just want to clarify, with the epigenetic stuff, are you targeting the genes that cause epigenetic modifications or are you um, targeting the epigenetic modification itself? At the moment, we're trying to understand the genes that are involved in the epigenetic pathways. Does that answer your question? Yeah. Um, with the um, nucleus, the DNA is in there as well, but isn't there also mitochondrial DNA? Can that also work on that as well if there was any faults there? So the... The CRISPR that depends on how we put the, the CRISPR mechanism into the cell, but normally we would add some sequence to that Cas9 protein to target it to the nucleus. Um, I I'm not aware of anybody targeting the um, to the mitochondrial um, but I blastome, but could. Yeah, but it can't yeah, it'd be, it'd be possible. The the problem for like uh, for repair wouldn't be possible. I think the the DNA damage repair machinery. And there's lots of mitochondria, but yeah, that's the main problem potentially. Each cell has many, many mitochondria, so yeah. you have to target you know, a lot of them, I guess. But totally possible in the future. <laughs> Hello. Um, I just have a question about how this whole process here works. So if you've got every gene knocked out in one flask in a bunch of different cells, how do you then go back and say, oh, it was this gene that was knocked out that caused this sort of loss of response to the toxin or whatever you're trying to show? Is there some sort of barcoding systems? Yeah. Yeah. So, so each guide is barcoded, basically. I mean, it's barcoded because it's targeting a different gene, mm -hmm. and so in its composition is a barcode mm -hmm. because it's targeting each gene. So then whatever's left grows out, we sequence it, and, uh, and then pull out the sequence. And also, each, each guide RNA is flanked by common, uh, like basically part of the lenti construct, the uh, lentivirus. Um, so we have common primers, and then, and then PCR out whatever is in between, which is the guide. So, then so you don't have to sequence the, uh, the whole genome of that cell. You no. just do a quick... Uh, test basically yep. and yep. tells you which gene yep. is being affected. And then follow-up studies, we have to prove that we knocked out the right thing. 
but um, for the first screen, it's just you pull out the guides. And also, we set it up so basically uh, only like the multiplicity of infection of 0.3. So basically, only one in every three cells is for sure guaranteed to have a virus. So the, the chance of multiple infections is is not, almost non-existent, so it's not something that comes up. So you don't use just RNA transfection because I guess that would that would just degrade in a few days, and then you wouldn't be able to see any effect. Or so you actually use a a, viral, a lentivirus, which I guess incorporates into the genome. Yeah. Don't you then come into the problem of the lentivirus will insert somewhere and could cause some insertional mutagenesis and to to some sort of degree? And so then, how do you know that which of the genes that you've knocked out are the ones that's responsible for what you're seeing um, as a response to the toxin. Yeah, and actually before CRISPR, we used lentiviral screening, a gene trap, as a way to, to mutate the genome. Um, but basically, it's a numbers game. So each guide is represented 6,000 times. And so all 6,000 virus would have to integrate or whatever, like a, a substantial proportion would have to integrate into the same site. Lentiviruses basically integrate fairly randomly ar around 70% of the genome. And so basically it just, that, those types of flukes just never, never happen because of the numbers, the sheer numbers. Um, I think all of you might have some sort of uh, way to answer this. I, I am asking specifically about this technique of knocking out um, knocking out a gene each of the 25,000 cases. Um, so it, it's, you're knocking out a gene to imitate the antagonism or sometimes agonism of, the, uh, of a specific protein. Um, when, you, when you do that, and it, it's all good for blocking the, um, the effect of, for example, a toxin, how do you, uh, what sort of ways would you plan to because I'm sure most of these proteins that uh, you, genes that you knock out encode for proteins that are really essential um, in whatever biological pathways, like one or many pathways. Good question. Um, how would you reinstate the function of those pathways or the protein while still having uh, the, the toxin or whatever is blocked? Uh, so, I mean, in general, when you knock out, uh, like, basically 10, 20% of human cells are, are essential, in that if you knock them out, the cells die, right? So we don't, we don't see any of that just because they're dead, right? They might be super important for the virus, or for the venom to work, but they're just dead as well, right? Um, so that's one aspect. Um, what we, so you're basically saying when you knock out a gene, and say, say we pick some gene that, that's vital for the venom to work, you're saying the cell's not the same anymore. No, I was asking no, basically my might be other important question. Yeah, sorry, if you knock say out. You, so then you would do a mouse study where you knock out that gene in mice and then you see whether there are, there are any adverse effects on the whole organism. Oh, yeah. I mean, but like through, through all of development, the genes can be repurposed multiple times, right? And so the, at the end, the deal would be what's, what's, it, what's it doing at the time when you're stung or whatever, when you have disease, right? And so, so a lot of times, super important developmental genes, you knock them out, the mouse will be lethal. But if you bypass that, the mouse, and then knock it out an adult, you'll get disease, right? And it'd be a disease target. So being super important is actually, uh, makes it sometimes more attractive as a drug target, and then you just don't want to have it as you're developing. Does that, another, does that answer your question? Sort of, yeah. Yeah, with something called like a, was it called knock sideways or something? You can, you can basically put a tag on it and you can sequester a protein. So you can add a drug, 
and then basically the, the tag from the protein just gets pulled and sequestered out of, out of its ability to do its, do it. and, and, and then you remove the drug and it goes back, right? But, um, but I don't know if... Uh, the protein, I mean, if the protein did two jobs in the cell, yeah. and one was related to the effect of the toxin and the other was perhaps, perhaps more important for the health of the organism, then potentially I guess you could develop a drug that only targeted one aspect of that protein, but probably unlikely. Yeah, it's kind of complicated, that, that question. <laughs> but you can test for that. But lots of drugs act extracellularly, uh, and so basically you can, you can specifically target an extracellular uh, protein easier. And you, and you can do screens to find molecules that interact with one function of it, one part of a protein. So you could perhaps use that. That was a really deep... <laughs> well thought out <laughs> question. Um, thank you for your talk tonight. I just wondered, so your work, you said that you know work that used to take seven years now takes two weeks, so that's a very quick time frame. Are you collaborating internationally or even in Australia so that you can collate your data to make even more uh, fundamentally rapid um, results? Like you're talking about the box jellyfish. Um, so you've got this topical, potential topical agent. Are other people around the world also looking at topical agents or, I mean, are you working with other people or is it just quite... Uh, for box jellyfish, I work with the guy in Cairns, Jamie Seymour, and then uh, I, I was trying to work with other people, but it's kind of a weird community, the jellyfish, they're all, they're, it's, it hasn't... And what about has the other, really like formed. in terms of the other diseases that you've profiled there? But for the other stuff, um, so we're doing, uh, we're doing um, Alzheimer's kind of stuff and... Um, we're doing cancer as our main thing. And so for cancer, we've been doing this for about seven years as well. We've done 30 of these types of screens for cancer drug resistance. Um, and then we've mixed that. There's basically like established uh, international um, uh, consortiums that have data on cancer mutations from different patients. Like there's tons of effort to sequence human cancer uh, around the world with or without drug treatment or different drug treatment. And so in, in that way, we've plugged our data into what's available from whole genome cancer screening. Uh, and then we work with people at the Garvin Institute in Sydney um, to work on that one. For pain, I work with a guy at Oxford. Uh, he's a clinician that sequences patients um, that have uh, strange peripheral neuropathies. So they have lots of pain or no pain or other weird sensation. Um, and, uh, and so from there, we've identified a new uh, pain drug target where the humans don't feel pain. It's an uncharacterized gene. Uh, and then we made a mouse where we edit the, the, the same gene and make the exact same mutation that the humans have. And they also don't feel pain. And so now we're studying the mechanism. The mechanism is weird. The, neural, the neurons start expressing muscle genes. So it's like there's some it's epigenetic insulator, actually. Um, so basically, the, the, they revert from neuron to some kind of more embryonic form in the adult animal, and it, it interferes with the pain. So that's one thing internationally. Um, but I mean, lots of people are doing this. This is like a race now, right? Like, so it start, we, we started early, but now everyone's attacking various diseases in their own ways. And, and pretty much, you just need to be an expert in whatever that area is. And then it's a. It's, so don't worry, like, there's tons and tons of explosive research going on addressing all of these diseases all in the U.S. and Europe, at least. You can buy these cell populations reasonably cheap. Yeah, it's freely available. This technology is freely available. Um, 
actually, well, it's $400, but it's basically free. Um, <laughs> um, so yeah, it, I'm not like, uh, like sitting on top of some, a treasure that only I can do. I, someone in Boston invented this, and uh, it's been given out free everywhere. Um, great. Uh, I was wondering what kind of cells you are using for this gene how to study. Is it pluripotent stem cells or just? Um, so the initial work we did, because we were, do, we were doing this before CRISPR existed, so we were doing gene traps. And so because we're doing gene traps, so CRISPR can target both alleles. Uh, Chris mentioned that. Um, but basically, you have two copies of each gene, right? And if you only knock out one, then you don't really have a phenotype. So um, before CRISPR, uh, we used haploid cells uh, and used a gene trap strategy. So it's a myeloid blood cell um, that then. These cells that you are currently using, are these stem cells? No, I'm telling you, they're the haploid uh, myeloid cells, uh -huh. right? Um, we are now doing stem cell, but nothing I showed you, nothing we've done basically yet, so is, is in human diploid stem cells. Um, but that's the, I mean, it depends on the, uh, it depends on the goal. So, um, so for basically for, we're looking at, we found regulation of, of, uh, of a, a specific pain cell was really important. And so now we're, we're making those cells from human ES and then uh, and screening them. But, uh, but it just depends on the, the, the disease. Thanks for a very interesting um, discussion. Um, I guess I've noticed uh, three principal perceived technical risks, and I was wondering to what degree you believe that they might continue to be barriers to the acceleration of the commercialization, if you like, of, of uh, discovery. Uh, and I think a couple of them were touched on already. Uh, mosaicism, um, off-target effects, which get a lot of press, and potentially also efficiency ratios? Yeah, no, sure. I, I certainly see that the explosion of the technology has been a problem in that, that it's moved so fast and, and so many groups have wanted to be the first to produce the first pig or the first knockout sheep or whatever. And that has created a bit of a problem because I feel personally that not enough research has been done to ensure uh, issues such as off-target effects and, and um, safety of delivery uh, on embryo development. So certainly we do have to be cautious, but the efficiency of the, the technique now over hundreds of studies has been um, confirmed. So it's giving more and more assurance about the efficacy of the actual procedures themselves. I think maybe more research can be done to validate the actual conditions that are used, certainly in terms of, in my area, the adverse effects on embryo development. Um, there's that detail missing in a lot of papers. They'll, they'll provide the details, okay, we did this and it worked and we got an animal on the ground and that's all they were trying to, to achieve. They weren't actually focusing on understanding the safety of the, the conditions. So I, I think that's an area where much more research needs to be done so we have a, a better understanding of, okay, what conditions gives us the high efficiency rates, um, no off-target effects, uh, no mosaicism. Like, can we deliver the components uh, into the oocyte 
before fertilization. I mean, the, the issue with mosaicism is that the gene edit is occurring after that additional, uh, initial DNA replication in the early embryo, prior to the embryo splitting into two cells. So you'll get once, if, if it happens after the replication, then you'll have one cell of the two, two cell embryo having the gene edit and the other not. And then as that organism grows, you'll have two different cell populations and hence a mosaic. So doing the research to understand if you can avoid that by doing earlier delivery or increasing the speed of the edit so that you avoid mosaicism, yeah, I, I think those things can be over, overcome, but that, that research has been lacking. But in terms of off-target effects, people have been working to develop a, a, a Cas9 that is much more specific. And so the off-target, we, we now have Cas9 proteins that produce hardly any off-target effects. And so people are doing research in, in, in that area to try to improve the efficiency. Hello, thank you. Um, just two really quick questions. Um, if all cells have the same DNA, what uh, occurs, you know, in the in the developmental phase to turn genes on and off? Um, so why are there differences in the cells? And my second one is uh, to do with intelligence. And and if any of you know of any research into intelligence with using Cas9, um, I heard recently. I don't know if it's true that a mouse got a human neuron put into it and it got smarter. Um, so do you know if that's true? And if you, do you know of any other research that's using, that's sort of focusing on intelligence? I can perhaps answer the, the first question at least. Um, so uh, there's several different processes that can uh, create pattern. Um, so one is uh, some initial cue uh, from outside the single cell uh, embryo um, and that can be something touching it or it can be something mechanical, tension even. So in mouse embryo, uh, the cells that end up on the outside by chance turn into one cell type and the ones that are inside cell turn into a different cell type. Other mechanisms, so from that, that can then perhaps set up one cell to emit a signal that travels, that diffuses throughout the embryo and the concentration of that signal can tell other cells what to do. Um, and then there are other mechanisms where simply cells talking to each other locally to their neighbours can create patterns. Um, and uh, so periodic patterns like even your, your fingers, the digits on, your, on, on yeah, your hand or your feet, that's a self-organising process uh, that involves uh, yeah, signals going to and from, but it's self-organising into, into patterns. And it's the same thing actually with plants. Um, these spiral patterns that you see uh, commonly in plants are created by what we think is a self-organising process with cells talking to each other locally. And that's actually something that we, we look at. So there are several different ways it can happen, uh, but it's, yeah, it's an interesting question. And um, once, once those signals have been established and the genes know whether they should be on or off, then in a lot of cases it's, it's, it's an epigenetic mechanism that keeps a cell silent. So there are epigenetic modifications that package a whole bunch of genes together into a region of the nucleus, which is basically 
a silent zone. So all of the genes that go into that region uh, are silenced and they're not going to get turned back on again. Um, and that happens throughout development as cells commit to the cell fate that they're going to ultimately have. I don't know about the intelligence one. It sounds weird. <laughs> oh, I, I know of the paper you're talking about, um, but yeah, I don't know enough about it. The paper itself, I think, was published. No, it was, I think it's a. I don't think there's any uh, evidence that it's dubious. Uh, so this was, if I recall, um, a genes that were identified that increased stem cell number early in brain development, and therefore you ended up with more neurons towards the end of brain development. Um, so, in relation to that, what was the question? So, yeah, so I don't think any of us have really... Well, there are going to be that many genes involved in intelligence that yes. it's not a simple matter that we can modify one, two, or even you know, a handful of genes. There's, there's a whole raft of genes, and, and some of those genes may be genes involved in Alzheimer's that you know, might be counterintuitive to, okay, well, we actually do need that gene. So you don't, you don't want to muck around with, with genes that could potentially lead to, to those sorts of conditions. I mean, there, there's tons of people studying in, like learning and memory in mice and in fruit flies and other animals, and uh, there's ways to increase the animal's ability to remember, for sure. Um, but if, like when we screen stuff, um, usually like breaking it is way easier. So we can make animals die faster, way easier than we can make them live longer. Like so, we have like whatever like it was like 120 that make a gene new genes that make an animal die way faster, and then like two that make them live longer, right? And so it's just it. It's it's way easier to take apart a machine than to like randomly optimize it. You know what I mean? Hi. Um. Thank you for your talk. Um. I guess I was just wondering because uh, you guys talked a little bit about how CRISPR is able to I guess repair DNA sequences. Um. And I know that with a lot of uh, genetic diseases, for example, cystic fibrosis, um, scientists have been trying to. I guess, yeah, try to repair the DNA sequences, but uh, a problem they've faced is that um, it's wrong in every single cell inside the, um, the, the sufferer. Um, do, you, do you see a way to, I guess, overcome this with CRISPR technology, or um, if not, uh, is there anything else that, I guess, scientists can do? So with human therapies, blood diseases are the easiest for us to work on first because we can take, them, take blood out of the human and then edit it and then put it back, and those trials are kind of on, ongoing right now. Uh, and then liver is the next easiest because you can, you can edit. You basically add to the blood, and if you add it properly, it just goes straight to the liver. Uh, but as far as the lung, it's hard. I mean, there was gene therapy for cystic fibrosis in the late 90s, um, adenovirus, delivery to the lung to try and repair the CFTR. And basically what happened was that they added like a thousand times more virus than they were supposed to and killed the patient. Uh, and so that kind of just like killed gene therapy and editing for cystic fibrosis and for everything else for like 10 years. Um, and so probably the easiest way to, to help with the cystic fibrosis is to try that again, but use a non-criminal dose. Um, it was just like a terrible mistake that the, that the people made. Um, and, and that, I think that, that for CFTR, that, that one's reasonably okay to fix. So editing it might be harder. I mean, when we edit primary cells, we get like 3% efficiency. So 
three out of every 100 cells are corrected. Um, but if you put a transgene in, that would work way better. So for CF, SCF, that's a specific way. I think that'll happen in just a matter of, of getting momentum again. All right, thank you very, very much for coming and asking such interesting questions. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.